0: We have like an air mattress, but I thought we should tough it and like go go with like yoga mats and try to like really go for it. And I really felt my age doing that. Um, I've realized I might need the air mattress from now on. I I feel you know in a week I'm 33. I, I'm feeling that age now. I feel it in my bones, deep inside. Uh, and then once it started pouring rain, we were like, "Uh, time to go home for us." Mm-hmm. There were no there were no fires. I think I could have lasted in the rain and. A little bit of the cold if I could have a, a fire, a campfire.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of sad if they don't let you make a campfire. I understand why, because it's the dry season and all, but yeah. like, that's half the fun of camping. Last time I went camping last year, I spent a couple hours at night just sitting and staring at the fire and just kind yeah. of being mesmerized and, and hypnotized by it, and that was uh, one of my favorite parts of that trip.
0: I just stayed out anyway and just, like, listened to the the wildlife out there. Uh, I got some great pictures on the beach of uh, Ezra and uh, uh, things photobombing her. Um, First, we had an eagle swoop down and get a seagull, which I've never seen happen.
1: That's crazy. What?
0: And it was only, you know, like 100 yards off, so uh, that was a cool thing. I kept trying to walk toward it, and uh, I got a video of it, like, shredding the feathers and the feathers, like, rolling along the beach. Wow. and then we th- we went past where the eagle was, and suddenly there was a pack of horses, uh, mounted by people. By the way, uh, oh, people okay. <laughs> on horses, people on horseback, and they were uh, roaming the beach. Then on the way back, we caught a deer. Uh, deer in the background of one of our pictures. So uh, that was I didn't really get any of just Ezra, but uh, that was a productive photo sesh, as they call it on Instagram.
1: I guess uh, nature really missed you for this past year, <laughs> waiting for you to come
0: back out. And... I, I miss ma- nature, by the way. I feel like I, I miss being outside. I missed uh, having people around. Like, a, We had a, a fellow dad camping next to us, so occasionally we'd break away from our, our family units and talk about dad things on the side, and that's just really what I needed, like a, a neighborhood dad meet-up at the campgrounds. So mm-hmm. That guy comes out there every year, so we're thinking maybe we'll match up times next year and Uh, Maybe go hang out. Ezra was able to go play with his kids. She hasn't been able to play with kids out of school for, you know, 15 months. So, uh, big big deal for her. Big things happening there uh, for her mind and development. It really feels
1: like things are are coming back. You know, the things are returning to normal. And we're getting to do all the things that we've been craving
0: for the past year and a half. And it sounds like you've dipped into something that uh, you've been missing out on. uh, Something that was very special to you. I did. I did yesterday. I went to the movies for the first
1: time since last February.
0: <laughs> did you go to the Hollywood? It looked like a different one.
1: I did not go to the Hollywood. Uh, the Hollywood Theater, the one I have ranted and raved about on this podcast, basically since its inception, uh, has only just recently opened up. They're only uh, they they only have one thing they're showing right now, which is the new Questlove documentary, Summer of Soul. And they have oh, a couple of yeah yeah they have a couple of seventy millimeter things that they're ready to show again, a lot of which I'd already seen. Um, and, I've, and I was waiting for something to go back to, something I knew was going to be special. It was going to be good. Because obviously theaters have been open for uh, a good while now, a good several months with, you know, certain restrictions and limitations in place. But a lot of the smaller independent art house theaters, you know, were, uh, you know, still waiting a bit, particularly mm-hmm. in the case of the Hollywood. But there's a closer theater here uh, in Vancouver, actually. Uh, that I have not mentioned here before because I had not been to it before and that's the 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 Kiggins Theater in downtown Vancouver. It's, oh, cool. w- it's one of like 10 arthouse theaters in the entire state of Washington. Uh, which is very interesting that that and I and I consider myself even luckier than that not only do I live within a half hour's driving distance of like five really nice arthouse theaters in Portland but there's one <laughs> yeah. here basically in the backyard that's e-
0: <laughs> Ten in Washington, I feel like we might have four of them in Seattle. Potentially. Uh, the
1: the other yeah. ones I've been to are, there's one in Bellingham, which is the, the Pickford Film Center, which is very nice. And then there's one in Port Townsend, which is the, the Rose Theater. And that one's also very, very nice, very, you know, a historic building as well. But to, to have one in Vancouver, you know, I've been surprised by Because it, it is like, you know, Vancouver is essentially just, you know, the, the deformed twin attached to uh portland separated by the columbia river <laughs> right it's it's a commuter town almost like it's 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 big just by proxy of its proximity to portland that's the only reason it's so big mm-hmm. um but it's it's a wonderful town in and of itself um and i i love living here not just because i don't have to pay ridiculous income tax you know not living in oregon but yeah just you know just because it's a nice place to be as well in and of itself but the kiggins uh I was very excited to go check out. Originally, uh, they they, they started up their Noir Night series again, which is a monthly showing of a classic noir film. And last month, they had the the Maltese Falcon, which I flirted with going to go see as my first foray back into the the theater. But I missed my chance, because tickets sold out before I made a commitment to that. But uh, since they were showing the third man next, I knew that I was not going to miss out on that, and that I was committing to making this my first venture back into the, the real world
0: what an impressive what an impressive film to come back to by the way uh just brilliant
1: you 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 have no idea you have no <laughs> idea how how much more i felt like i experienced it on the big screen and and having the theater and embracing the atmosphere and the environment again it it felt absolutely magical calvin i'll tell you it was <laughs> That's wonderful it, it, it it's it's definitely going to be one of those treasured theater experiences i have i uh, you know i spent a good i got there really early like because i got the, the show times mixed up uh i oh, thought I, I started i thought i started at 7 actually started at 7 30 and i'm always going to the theater early i, I get there at least a half hour early because i don't like having to search for a seat in the back and when you're with someone you got to find like two seats next to each other so it's just better to get there early and i feel and like stick it's
0: a I kind of have a ballsy move that if it's not a press showing, I leave home around when the movie starts, and then I get there. You know, I get there as soon as if it's a chain. Yeah. I mean, if it's an art house, I get there way early. But if it's a chain theater, I'm like, okay, it'll have about 25 minutes of advertisements, so I leave when the movie begins and, and I test think that's my a, luck.
1: That's a safe bet. I've I haven't been to. A chain, a chain theater since like i'm pretty sure yeah i mean it, it would have to be since i haven't been to a theater in you know more than a year is uh when, sonic when, the hedgehog yeah, sonic when we yeah. go see sound together which was a press screening yeah so, so um it, yeah it wasn't about in fact i i think i was almost late i was kind of catching up <laughs> to you guys there It but, uh,
0: kind of forced my hand right like all those press screenings me and i spend a lot of time in those uh chain theaters
1: yeah yeah, it's it's not as much by choice as by necessity, but but definitely I agree with you in the case of a in, an independent theater like that, you got to get there early, you got to stick out your your spot, and you want to as well because it's a it's such a different experience when you're sitting with people and in a place that is cultivated specifically for an appreciation of film, not a consumption of movies, but an appreciation of them. Everyone is there to to like take in and absorb the film and not just kill time for for that and that's what a lot of you know the uh re- regular theaters you know chain theaters are are about more of the the masses who enjoy films on a on a you know kind of surface level and it, and i'm not trying to be elitist about that idea you know just the the, the realistic observation that yeah you know uh, general public who go in to see a movie you know the latest movie or whatever uh you know have a different approach to, to watching films than people like me or you or, or people out there listening who, who are going in there to experience something as, as a piece of work, as, as, as a piece of art.
0: Unless they're seeing an AMC artisan film, right? Those are, uh, those are uh, um, like Zola right now?
1: <laughs> so <laughs> No. <laughs> even, even the revival screenings I've been to at like an AMC or Regal Theater, there's still an inherent kind of like... Yeah, yeah. Care, carelessness to the the presentation. It's it's not as nice. It's not as you know considered or cultivated, and the environments are are, are definitely less less cared for. There, there's less character to your to your surroundings, and the people who go there are sometimes a little bit more uncouth. Uh, you're, of course, uh, I have not. I've yet to have a bad audience experience in an art house theater, and maybe that's just because of the ones I've been going to. But
0: I have, but it, I have during a kurosawa of all things but, oh no uh, i'll get to it another time
1: Mhm. but yeah so i was i was the first person at the at the theater this time and it was it was unintentional because I, I was there extra early and and the doors were still closed they hadn't opened them yet but i kind of like i wandered in and i, and I caught the, the the managers and the employees by surprise but they welcomed me very very openly and they were very excited that that i was there and i was the first person in uh and you know it was—I believe it was—one of their first screenings. You know yeah. that they had no restrictions on anymore, no no mass requirements, no capacity limitations or anything like that.
0: Did you and, wear one anyway? I, no, no, no. I,
1: I I didn't. Being being fully vaccinated, uh, I've just I've, I've chosen to to embrace this wholeheartedly as a you know kind of. A connotation of getting back to normal i carry a mask with me in case because there yeah, are still places that require it but uh, i'm not walking around outside with one at, at the time just because it's uh you know it, you 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 got to get past that mentality eventually it, it feels like a like a safe barrier to kind of have in many ways and i'm not you know i don't uh disregard anyone who wants to continue wearing it certainly but i think for for a general mindset it's important to recognize what the actual purpose of the mask is, what it served for the past year, and what its place is today.
0: Absolutely, it, I'll, I'll take one with me because some businesses like you to wear one. But uh, yeah, yeah, and it's
1: no big deal to throw it on. But you know, if if the recommendations and the the requirements right now are that no, you don't have to wear a mask if you're vaccinated, uh, there's no reason to. You know, you yeah. you don't have to. But uh, yes, yeah, so I was. <laughs> And and I'd never been in the the Keegan's before. This was my first time there. I would known about it for a long time, and I'd meant to to go check it out before, but I was just such a slave to the Hollywood theater that I just <laughs> never ventured anywhere else. Um so, but but they were showing things. The Keegans has been, you know, putting up things and showing things that have piqued my interest much more than what's at the Hollywood currently, because they're just now getting the reopening. And I'll be back there soon enough. But um I was very excited to go see this the, the third man on the big screen as I'd never before and I spent uh, uh, the good half hour the extra half hour I had before the movie walking around the place looking at it you know uh, taking in its, its kind of historic architecture and style and talking with the employees there and asking them how they've been doing this whole time and, and what it's like being back to things and you know what they thought of the movie that they were showing which I don't usually do i'm not i'm not as talkative of a person with the the employees as a or or other people and whatnot um you know who are going there just because it's it it can be a little hard you know to to just to to bridge that and and be the person to open the conversation with complete strangers uh who are just trying to do their job Uh, first of all i you know they don't always
0: want to talk to you i know i know when
1: i'm working like the dealing with customers is like my least favorite thing i don't like those people but in a movie theater i imagine that's kind of different because you have that like-minded interest that you're there to talk about and share with and so if
0: you if you're a customer service and customer facing that's kind of expectation anyway right but
1: But hopefully at least have that kind of mutual interest to agree and talk about so, so I talked with a, a couple of the guys. I talked with. They they had a nice uh, bar space upstairs. I talked with the uh, They they attendant there who gave me kind of a history of things. Uh, you know, the theater was built in 1934, and you know, and, and such. And uh, um, he you know he managed to sell me on a specific uh, red ale that they had brewed specifically for the Kiggins Theater. He Managed to rope me into that. So I had that before uh, the the show started as well. I talk with the guys at the the popcorn stand as people were still filing in and it was slow there's a you know guy there who was relatively new he'd been there for like a week or so but he was mm. a, an advent attendant of the kiggins before then and i <laughs> just very very excited to to be back and absorb everything and then i think
0: that i think that reminds you that movies are also about community and that these are we go there to see them in a large space because it brings a community together which is something we've missed out on in the cineplex and I think it's very important to maintain that. I go to my small theaters and I know the people there and I, I know them by name and they know me. Like we have a relationship and we talk about movies and we have ongoing conversations and it really is a community formed around movies. Yeah. It's important. That's
1: exactly and that's exactly what I was looking to cultivate by like, right. going back and what I missed so desperately and what this past year has felt like it's been missing is the social aspects of life it felt like our you know our, our social circles have been confined to these the you know these screens and these you know uh, text-based you know communications or even this where where i'm staring at you over a zoom call like <laughs> this it's it's wonderful and a, and a great advancement of technology but it's not quite the same as being in the same room as as you or with any of our mm-hmm. other friends or people but even even more than that the Films were, were meant to be, particularly these films, were meant to be shown for, for a large gathering of people, for a group. And I don't, it's not something you're aware of, and the, the circumstances are different when you're viewing something in that kind of environment. Um, you know, if, for, for just example, in The Third Man, and, and I think a lot of other films that you don't realize as well, is that films are so much funnier than we we think they are then you give them yeah. credit for even the most serious or bleakest of films there are, there's an inherent comedy that you don't notice until everyone around you is laughing and they mm-hmm. have a chuckle at just these small moments and and you and you realize that oh I, I never realized that that was such a, a humorous element and it, and it brightens up another corner of the film that you didn't you know consider before there was there was one aspect in particular that the audience here for the third man really, really loved and that's there i don't know if you recall but there's uh anna the 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 female characters uh, who, who's in love with harry lime her her landlady when the police keep coming to investigate and she's just like going off on these tirades in german the the whole time uh everyone loved that they laughed every time she was on screen <laughs> and, I, and it, it was she was like a character that never really like occurred to me before to even give more than a passing thought but very she, funny. She yeah. was such a, a, a crucial aspect, and you don't realize that sitting on your couch and watching the movie.
0: Absolutely, you get so much more out of how the uh, author of the film has directed the attention of the audience. Uh, it, it is a special and different um, idea than uh, you don't get much from watching just on your screen at home. No, that... I've lost so much. <laughs>
1: The television screen and the, the, the advent of home entertainment and that is something I will always appreciate and value as yeah. as a as an institution of, of preservation and personal curation. You know, I'm I'm such a huge advocate for, for you know, having your own collection and, and this vast array of movies you can tap into at any point in this on demand access to things. But it it movies really are a communal experience um mm-hmm. that, that is best appreciated in a large gathering like this and and nothing will remind you of that better than losing it for an entire year of course and so it was it was so special to be back and so much of the film That I already loved, that I already thought was a masterpiece, just brightened even more, became even more illuminated. You know, all these these tiny details in the corners or being able to scan the screen and see, you know, things just in the background or or details Mm -hmm. that you never thought to consider that just add more character to the film and... And, and appreciating the, the the environment and the collection of people that you're sitting with and enjoying and observing something as as a collective, but also as individuals, uh, it was it was everything that I had missed. It was everything that that I needed, and it was more than I had ever possibly appreciated before. You know, I've had many many uh, once in a lifetime film experiences at the theater. Yeah, but. I I just don't think you can you really understand everything that it has to offer until it's until it's missing for, for so course. long.
0: Of uh, course. For me, it was like business as usual. I, I mean, I went to an AMC to go back, which kind of steals some of the magic away, right? But mm-hmm. and it was Fargo, a film I was very familiar with and had seen way back when it released anyway in theater. And uh, for me, just business as usual. I didn't have like a revelatory experience, but. Um, I still haven't visited the art houses, which haven't opened up here yet. So, uh, still waiting. This month they're all opening. So I'll, that'll, that'll be, be great,
1: fantastic. I'm I'm so glad that I, like I said, I, I I waited for something special to to go back to, and I found a special place. And uh, I, you know, in in some ways I'm glad that I didn't go back to the to the my usual place of congregation, my my mm. usual church, you might say. Yes, um yes. and i and i gave it a brand new experience I, I i kind of consecrated this singular original experience by by embracing a new place entirely for my first mm-hmm. and, and very special experience and it could have been a risk it could have been a dump you know yeah. i've been i've yeah, been to some could. some lesser art house theaters around i've been to some you know pretty shitty theaters as well that that uh just aren't enjoyable or they have really bad audio quality or or you know the the people who work there really don't give a shit uh and it it could have been that because i didn't know i knew it was an institution but you know i I hadn't done much more research on my own beforehand i just knew that it was a staple area but i'm i'm so glad that it was such a a majestic and welcoming experience I, (laughs) i i really can't emphasize how honestly like like embraced i felt you know particularly the 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 manager of the theater who was the first there to greet me she was she was so warm and bubbly and enthusiastic and it was like this is this is everything that i love about the enthusiasm and and embrace of of film that people who are here love movies and they want us all to come back
0: From the total warmth of you going to the theater and experiencing the magic of movies and how they could connect us all to uh, possibly the most antisocial movie-related event you can do, um, I've sat alone reading a book (laughs) by myself for the last two weeks while I've been out of the show, uh, which seems like the most antisocial way you could possibly relate to a movie, right? Is just to have a one-on-one relationship with the book. That seems like the most uh, internal. And uh, I mean, not even nobody else hears it. Nobody else sees what you're doing. Uh, Just kind of stuff like between the pages and bookworming your way through a a movie's uh, novelization, uh, a mass market paperback novelization, a kind that would have only come out in the 70s. Right now, new modern books, they come out in hard copy, then it takes six months for them to actually get to where they're going to be paperback again. Um, So it's very rare for one to come out like this. And in that sense, I appreciate it. I think it's neat to go for something that's a a little bit disreputable. Like saying, like, Hollywood 1969, you should have been there as the subtitle. That makes it sound like some, excuse my phrase, but real pulp fiction. Um, (laughs) We're talking about Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which is his novelization of his own film usually creepy fan fiction comes from a uh, outside the author but this time the creepy fan fiction comes right from the source uh, yeah I I don't know where to begin there's so much to say about it um, should I begin with the changes that what's different than the movie
1: well, well well before you dive in i I'd, I'd love to also like kinda of echo that sentiment about novelization and that it's just yeah. kind of like looked down upon or even like unacknowledged art art form and appreciation right. that uh is almost like gone. You know, there was there was like a host like every film got a novelization in like the eighties <laughs> and the seventies, like you said, and and they're all just like sitting in like like dumpster piles somewhere or, or yeah. some you know uh ent- you know enthusiast collection somewhere where there's like, you know, a library of, of these books adapted from Films and, and that's interesting. And, and Tarantino himself has been playing with this for a while. Like, when that Hateful Eight script was first leaked, and then he's like, fuck it, I'm just going to publish it as a book. and yeah. <laughs> then, But then just decided to make the movie anyway. Uh, so, you know, he's he's not, you know, th- this has been coming, I think. And so it's interesting to see then how he, he manifests as as a writer then of, of novels. Um, so I've been, uh, d- despite being not the, the greatest champion of the film itself or of, of Tarantino's writing style overall. I have been mm-hmm. very interested to hear how this has gone over uh, as a book and as a supplemental piece to the film as well.
0: I think the th- place to start is that I think the movie is terrific. I mean, for me, it's like a, like a big movie and a big deal of 2019. One of the best movies of that year, for sure. Uh, so for me, novelizations, they're very... They're always misses, right? Like, I, <laughs> I, I've i never read one and thought, thank God they did that for the movie. Uh, thank God that added that context that I needed. Uh, most of them that I've read are very literal and direct translations. This is not that at all. Uh, there's so much in this that's not in the movie. Uh, some things in the movie are not in this at all. Uh, it's a mix of ideas and uh, reorganization of the ideas that are in the movie. I think I should start with the ending of the movie. <laughs> so, uh, the part where the the uh, family comes in and they try to go for the murder and they get, like, torched in the pool and all that. That starts on, like, page 100 to 400 of the book. Like, oh. that's very early on. So it's a total, like, de-emphasization of all that. And uh, it kind of de-emphasizes that from the plot. And moves that somewhere else. So like, is it,
1: so is it is it chronological, or is it also kind of like all over the place, time-wise, like a lot of Tarantino films are?
0: Oh, it's very scattered. That's a flash-forward that's happening at page 100, so you're not okay. just going after that. Like, after that, you're going back, and you're living out the whole day that precedes that event. That's
1: that's kind of what I figured. Uh, that yeah. seems very typical of, of his writing style. Um, so not entirely and, unexpected, but
0: and it also goes past the ending right like uh, because there's no like dramatic point in the ending where it's like a revelation about film uh one other note to make about the book is that it's more about tv uh it's more about like westerns on television i don't know if, how familiar you you are but uh, like
1: like your bonanzas and gun uh, like, yeah, and yeah like bonanza
0: yeah. rawhide gunsmoke, like that whole era of television and um Effectively, it's built around a lot of that in the popular music of the time, what was playing on the radio, uh, more so than the movies. Um, the conflict of the movies is mostly in the characterization of like Cliff Booth, I think, and his like uh, return from the war his realizing that American movies are never serious enough and kind of finding uh, that international cinema could be his savior because they're more mature and that they understand like the gravity of situations and they're realistic, and they actually reflect reflect like a real world because he's he's experienced so much pain and, and loss in the war so for him to, it's more about like reflecting on that but it keeps being written in Tarantino's voice like he'll keep a uh, listing like Kurosawa's because he had a bad time with Redbeard and then he's like but let me list my top five right and then <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> uh, my biggest problem with it is that it reads like a screenplay right because it's always third person present tense and uh, it flips between perspectives like that
1: that's that's very different for uh, a book, you know. Most yeah. books are written very first person, you know, and and, and they're very stuck. to So uh, while that is also an, an interesting component for a novelization to run forward, I can see how it's also kind of it's odd and seems not not correct. Um,
0: well, yeah, he'll give like those cues, like a like a stage direction for an actor instead of prose, right? Mm-hmm. Like he'll give stage directions to his people in his script. But then it's also written in third-person present, and it's a kind of annoyingly reads just like a movie. Like, I mean, it reads like a movie would, but I, I think that's also part of this, right? Like, I think that's part of the pulp fiction of it all, is that it's a, supposed to be disreputable. Like, it's not intentionally great literature. Um, other things, like, to note is that, like, the span Ranch scene's totally different. It's told, well, I mean, th- what happens is the same, but... It's shortened up and told from the perspective of Squeaky, so he'll take. She's the one that looks after George Span. Yeah, yes. she's the one who like makes his food and uh, has sex with him to keep him happy and all that. So, uh, she. Yeah, so it's uh, told from a different perspective and shortened. So he'll tighten a lot of things up from the movie too, and he'll like rewrite them in a few interesting ways. That's um, it's
1: really interesting because I think arguably the the Spawn Ranch sequence is probably the best one of, yeah. of the film. At least from my uh, recollection, because it is, and and because, specifically because it's so drawn out and has so much tension and build up towards it. So shortening it seems kind of antithetical to to its effectiveness.
0: Yeah, it it doesn't play the same way in the book at all. Um, And I mean, Cliff's path and like his whole story arc doesn't really play the same way. And I feel like rather than that being like a rising action... It is treated more as a climax, which I think it plays as in the movie. I think that's the most climactic movie in a uh, part of the movie, and it's like centered in the like the center of the film, right? Like, uh, so it does play a structure there. And span ranch is put toward the end, where it could serve more of that function in like the story arc. Uh, different other things are arranged. Um, I think Rick Dalton gets a lot more mileage out of his relationship with the young girl and how she changes his ideas about how to act and what it means to be an actor in a tv western um uh, while he's still embattled with like what the foreign italian directors are doing in their italian westerns right um mm-hmm. <laughs> so he's got to like get through that and she helps him a ton with that in the book and uh she has more character but also sharon tate gets a lot more character because we're allowed inside her head right uh in those se- sequences where she goes to the movies we're allowed to see what she thinks and uh, that's one break it takes from, like, the third person present is it allows us to see more of Sharon's mind and uh, what she really feels. Um, so it's it does a lot more follow through than just, like, suggesting that uh, this is a, a reclamation of a, a a future that we never got. Um, it does a better job of tidying those things up. But um, for me, it's also pretty trashy writing. <laughs> is, it, uh, is it is
1: it is it? pretty badly written is it like like let, let me hear about your opinion of Tarantino as a novelist
0: <laughs> I mean not very good as a novelist I think I think he write I think he transitions between being a screenplay and essay writer uh, I feel like a character will be in the middle of an important action and then he'll spend four pages talking about their thoughts on one director or something <laughs>
1: that that sounds that sounds exceedingly like a Tarantino thing to do like I, I'm sure the film is stuffed with just like film references and lists of filmographies and like obscure recommendations that you need to see you know because you've never heard of it before or some other shit
0: (laughs) and it really does like live like within that hollywood studio system it's more of a celebration of that and like the directors and, and auteurs that came from it and kind of the lineage and legacy that led to what happened um i gets more into the manson stuff too uh uncomfortably and <laughs> i don't know i i always find that stuff uncomfortable i never I mean, want to spend time it is with serial it is killers. very
1: uncomfortable it's in it's inherently uncomfortable because it's a really fucking dark you know chapter there uh and uh and, and a, a real history and a horrible violent uh racist uh disgusting you know tumor that that kind yeah. of conjugated and in, in, you know uh los angeles at that time period but uh it's also something kind of integral to be documented and and known uh i don't i don't know how much of it to be explored in a fictional or, or, or theatrical sense in in this case and that's part of the it the doesn't issue. go that far uh... yeah yeah but and, and i think that's the issue that's many people including myself have with with some of the address of the film and how it takes these these real and, and horrific events and kind of uh twists them or or, you know kind of fictionalizes them in in certain ways and it's just it's a hard ground to tread and it's you know always a tough matter to work with but especially with something so explosive and so emblematic of you know the 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 time period
0: yeah i feel like by putting that part with like the flamethrower and everything at the beginning it kind of de-emphasizes all of that like uh, restructuring of that history and kind of just lets the other stories live on their own um it it does add a bit with Pussycat, who's Margaret Quayley's character, and uh, a part where she has to do a creepy crawl of the house, of a house of a older man and an older woman while the family sits outside. Uh, the way that Tarantino describes women hasn't improved by him writing it long form, mm. uh, if you wouldn't be surprised. Uh, there's never one reference to their feet. Like, you would think that in any novel it would be sufficient to say, I don't know why every woman needs to be defined by if they're barefoot or not, but I, I just feel like that doesn't have to be the first description of their, their presence in a story is what they're wearing on their feet. Um, but it's not once. It's two or four times each character. I'm, I mean,
1: I'm kind of curious. Do you think like do you think Tarantino is playing into it now? Yeah, I do. Because like, I do. like he he obviously has to to know about it. Like I'm almost thinking like, because there's that very like overt scene in Hollywood where she's got <laughs> yeah. her feet up on the dashboard, pressed against. It's the in window. there. Yeah, like I, it's in the I, book. I, I feel like that's that's intentional. That that he's like like poking at us and playing into it. You know, very specifically at the, at this point, and and yeah. we're all just feeding off of it. Like like you know, fucking idiots <laughs> just playing into his hand and, and taking that and see like, see, look, he's he's totally obsessed. And it's like, it was probably just like one thing he did or like <laughs> like a few times, like starting with Pulp Fiction and then everyone fixated on it. Now he's like, fine, I'm, you know, it's fun. And, and he's having just as much fun as we are with it.
0: Right. Like it was like the foot rub and Pulp Fiction led to, you know, like the Kill Bill Toad led to, you know, yeah. just uh, I think he might be having fun with it, but I think also... He might be fixated. I realized from this, real? <laughs> yeah, I realized from this that, uh, the point of his fixation with feet is that they have to be big. It's very important for the foot fetishists for feet to be big. Uh, dirtiness matters. He'll also comment on how soiled panties are. So uh, oh, that, oh. that also matters to him. Um, Margaret Qualley's characters. Well, I guess I should say it also divorces them from who they are in the movie, right? Like it's, you, eventually, you stop thinking about Leo uh, DiCaprio and um, Brad, Pitt Brad Pitt and Margaret Crayley. You just start seeing like the characters as they're written. Mm-hmm. So eventually, you, you get that distance. But, but on that creepy crawl, when she sneaks into the house, uh, she has to take all her clothes off. And then it describes her getting on her hands and knees and how she's uh, crawling upstairs into the bedroom. And then he's like, and she gets like, you know, uh, raised goosebumps on her butt and then wiggles her ass and it's talking about her putting a red light in her mouth it just like the
1: that seems very very excessive and overly like like sexualized and indulgent why does she have to take her clothes off to to run around does that make you quieter or something
0: (laughs) maybe but uh, she gets up there and she takes the red light in her mouth and puts it into a light bulb i don't really understand the whole purpose of it um, I don't know what the family's like marking this house, or or what the whole point was. I think it was just like an initiation for her. Very, but,
1: uh, very very odd. strange, <laughs> and
0: I I don't really know how to feel that that like that level of detail on like her body specifically and not her characteristics. I, I think that's the
1: dangerous thing <laughs> with letting someone who has these these very you know overt fixations and, and sexualizations and fetishizations throughout their, their work, letting them loose in in a medium that thrives and, you know, is, is inherently, you know, uh, sufficed on over, you know, over detailing everything and really describing all the intricacies of certain things. So letting someone who's already got uh, an unhealthy fixation on these elements uh, just run free in, in the realm of, you know, this uh, is, is inherently going to you know result in uncomfortable matters like that
0: um i guess we should continue with this problematic behavior and get to the bruce lee thing huh uh
1: yeah i was i was kind of curious to see if there was going to be more uh, uh, uh apologetic you know or, you know or like just uh the opposite of that you know just leaning into it more so uh how how he was going to address the backlash so to speak
0: um well the first thing he did is after Bruce Lee's daughter came out and said how offensive it was, he said any critic of that should go suck a dick. Um, that was his response formally to the Bruce Lee thing, <laughs> is that every critic of that uh, scene needs to go suck a dick. Um, so that's a uh, Tarantino. Uh, but in the book, he takes it even further. Um, oh, great. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he equates Bruce Lee to Charles Manson. Um, Whoa, why <laughs> Yeah.
1: <laughs> what?
0: Uh, which is just befuddling to me. I mean, I could try to connect it, like, very loosely. In his career on the Green Hornet, Bruce Lee was, like, the kind of guy Charles Manson was trying to break into an industry. Uh, and oh, okay. And went too far. <laughs> that's, a, that's a stretch. Uh, I kind of yeah. see
1: where, where you're trying to make the connection there, but it feels very forced. You're, you're putting... I feel like
0: I'm making the connection that Tarantino isn't, though. I don't know why he <laughs> made that... And it's a whole paragraph comparing him to Charles Manson. I mean, there's no like specific reference point for me there, except that he hates Bruce Lee.
1: Um, I, but I, the, the, as part of the whole problem of this is that I'm pretty sure he doesn't hate Bruce Lee. If anything, he has a great, well, great enthusiasm. Yeah, he also admires him. him <laughs> but it's this weird. I, I don't know what what the hell is yeah. the motivating factor behind. Okay.
0: So at least there's a motivating factor in this okay. is that Rick's, a, um, sorry, uh, Cliff is a stuntman and he feels that Bruce Lee has been tagging American stuntmen, which means he's over committing to his stunts and he's hurting the American stuntman in his stunts. And so there's a lot of resentment and, uh, Cliff's character is kind of a ringer. So he's brought in to kind of sort out what stuntmen, you know, all the problems they have with, the kind of over aggressive guys uh so out of that reputation he comes in and he fights bruce lee and challenges him to a best of three um i always did believe in the logic that uh of course a green beret guy who knows like fucking judo and jujitsu would kick a karate guy's ass like that is the whole premise of ufc right Mm -hmm. we had years of proof that a karate guy can't beat a guy who wrestles to the ground i mean that's just obvious so of course cliff booth would kick his ass but also i just don't see the need for that like scene after like the whole family's offended and i i I also don't i don't know where to go with it i think the charles manson thing is too far though
1: yeah the whole point of the scene to me is is basically just to to take overpower well yeah to take this icon and 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 use him as as a point to to express the the uh capability of uh your stuntman character here by by close character by overcoming and taking down this mm-hmm. uh character but it goes further than that by making him kind of like buffoonish and you know like overly you know confident you know and, and dickish so that not only are you expressing cliff's character's you know uh, uh, own ability but you're you're expressing the fallibility and fakeness and the the uh the the faux quality uh of, of lee that is purported by his reputation and you're trying to make an, an iconoclast essentially out of out of lee there and that he's taking right. down this symbol of you know uh the uh you know virility or you know uh power in in, in particularly in the this uh you know, martial arts icon and and the idea of the martial arts overall, this embodiment of it. It's it's this kind of layered thing and taking down of of symbols that comes across as is really nasty, which again is very odd for someone who very clearly has a reverence for for Lee, as you can see oh, throughout he his He does work. seem
0: to he does seem to have a reverence for his work.
1: Yeah, but at the same time he's he's going out of his way here to kind of like <laughs> pop this this myth which is uh in in a very nasty way it feels like it comes across as and that's the big problem and and while you could and and people have for the past two years argued against the idea that he's making out lee or he's you know or he's bringing to the fold the the more real sense of him and the the inherent arrogance that that was there in in the real human lee uh it's kind of hard to defend the blatant comparison to charles manson then
0: <laughs> I, think, I think like we talked about earlier in my theater that played as comedy but for me a little bit confusing why that should just be a straight comedy so, uh,
1: like, again at at best you're still you like like trying to take down this icon for no other reason than to embolden the fictional character you've made there and and that has an inherent nastiness just in in concept there and that's me giving it like the The most benefit of of reasoning there is that you're using Lee as a placeholder to showcase how great your own character is here, and uh... so
0: so Cliff in the book is not likable. Um, I mean, it's there's no ambiguity now. Uh, did did he definitely uh,
1: kill his wife?
0: He killed his wife with a harpoon gun to kill it. Like, used to kill a shark. Like, like... he tore her in half. Like, it's described him killing his wife. But, uh, like,
1: was it intentional?
0: Yeah, I... I probably. Uh,
1: <laughs> okay, so it's not it's not entirely for sure. It's still kind of ambiguous, but not as ambiguous as the movie. Because in the movie, it's pretty, like, heavily indicated that, yeah, he probably did it on purpose, but...
0: Yeah, that's kind of the book's turn. I mean, it goes through the scene. He definitely killed his wife, but... Oh, well, yeah. Uh, did he... did he do it on purpose? Um, I mean, the book talks about whether he did it on purpose or not, uh... It it definitely seems to think so. Uh, I I think he did, yes. Um, (laughs) And I think he's killed other people even outside the war in the book. Um, And his dog even uh, gives us another layer, maybe not to like Cliff so much or or trust him as well. Uh, The Bruce Lee thing, by the way, just plays as a memory in his head. So uh, we're taking all that, but we're also remembering that uh, this is a kind of distorted view of uh, cliff's memory well, I of what happened that's the fight. case
1: in the movie as well because he's having I that so. that he's it's like it's presented in a flashback he's working on the house on on the roof and he's considering right. whether he's going to go to the studio or whatnot and he has this whole memory to being on the set and kurt russell's there as well and he, that's when he kind of confronts lee and that's when he comes back and it's like nah nah i don't want to deal with that again and, like, again, it's one of those things where you could justify it more so by this idea that it's a fantasy. Maybe he didn't even actually beat Bruce Lee. You know, it's this, you know, indulgent kind of view of his perspective on it. But it's all, like, again, it's kind of like jumping over these hurdles to kind of explain why Tarantino decided to approach this particular idea with this, you know, uh, um, uh, like, barbed uh, attack, essentially, on on a character who—or on a person who has such you know great reverence and tragedy behind them in
0: and of themselves? Um, there's, I always liked the Cliff's relationship to his dog in the movie, and I thought that was uh, sweet. It's less sweet in the book. Uh, uh, he kind of got the dog from an old bet, and trying to like get his funds back from a friend he lent money to. Um, and he used the dog for dog fighting to kind of make money back. So gross. So Brandy's kind of a ploy for a gross, like, dogfighting ring and uh, nearly died, and so he kept it from dogfighting eventually. But it goes very into detail about how all that happened and what that was like. Uh, so for dog advocates, maybe there's a chapter to skip in there. Uh, that doesn't really add much to the rest of the story. That's kind of how I feel about this book, is that there's, there's a bunch of individual chapters that say things and uh, add new context or remove context or rearrange context. But I, I don't know what it all cumul- <laughs> as cumulative as an accumulative thing kinda says like together, right? Like what what is the point of doing this? Mm-hmm.
1: I mean to, to it seems just like a vessel for, for Tarantino to explore these characters he, he wrote yeah. more so and it's this interesting I guess it's like uh, an interesting remix of what he's already made and it shows how like the, the, the art form and this idea of fiction can spread across multiple mediums and forms of expression and there's different ways and you even yourself you called it like it's a kind of fan fiction and yeah i mean like we we see that in other areas as well too even in like later like sequels or reinterpretations of remakes uh, filmmakers do of their own works how they can take the material and the ideas and the themes that they've already you know rendered and uh transform them into different ways and so this is just another variation on that uh, the success of it, you know, that's a whole other thing to measure, and whether you'd think it's, you know, uh, good or, or comparable or worthwhile. Um... Well,
0: look, it could be the best one of these novelizations for all I know, right? Like I, I haven't read many that were actually successful. Most of them I've read are really bad. Like I read like a Wickerman one that's just literally the movie. I've read a ton of horror ones, and mm-hmm. they're all just literally the movie. At least, at least this is new context that those used to exist. I think because there was a large period of time where you watch the movie and then there's like this distant space before you get it like at home or yeah. or you don't get it at home uh when those started so uh, it was a way to keep a movie with you longer and i think this does serve that quality where i'm like readdressing what i thought of certain points of the movie either making them better or worse but but i think it's a i think it's special they made it he has a A two book deal with a Harper Collins. So uh, whether he goes and does a literary criticism or I know he's talked about like doing reservoir dogs in the same style. I think that would be interesting. I think that that, that one sounds really interesting,
1: particularly having the retrospect of it some 30 years later here. And yeah. getting to flesh out what was inherently a, a more simplistic vision and something rendered down to a smaller scale for a first feature, I think going further with that and, and kind of really exploring the backgrounds of these characters more and the environment, that, that sounds like it has a lot of potential as opposed to just kind of like rearranging and uh, you know regurgitating these you know further thoughts you had about something you just made. Uh, I think that that has an inherently more value.
0: But I, I think it's a fine book. I, I mean, it's Tarantino. It's different. It's unique and singular in a way that uh, one of these books probably hasn't been made exactly like this. So uh, if you're a Tarantino fan, I, I can't imagine not reading it. Um, uh, just to get all those details. I mean, if you want to know everything about Tarantino's movies and, and what he thinks of Hollywood and to read his fan fiction of Hollywood effectively, I think it, it is worth doing. But I don't think it's good writing. So uh, <laughs> yeah that's my uh, book report for this week
1: uh you, you got any more books you're looking forward to next week
0: <laughs> no
1: <laughs> a, a novelization corner might be a nice nice thing too if you I, I might keep board. doing
0: these that, that was a lot of fun actually uh, I feel like we had a good discussion i'm uh,
1: I'm sure you'll find it because i I am fascinated by them I just don't have like the commitment to follow <laughs> through and read a whole book like that but like the idea of someone else taking the material you know, and interpreting it in their own way and fleshing out things that maybe the original author didn't have there. It's a very interesting idea. And then, oh, uh, yeah. you know, with with it then being the original author themselves and coming back and, you know, bringing their same material in a different context, that's a whole other, uh, you know, fascinating component that uh, kind of follows through into our, our subject this week. I'm, I'm surprised by how well we'll be able to transition <laughs> from uh, the novelization of a Tarantino film to... Uh, Charlie Chaplin's The Gold Rush. <laughs> uh, I chose to watch the 1942 re-edit this time specifically because i hadn't seen it before and i wanted something new to bring to to the subject mm-hmm. and uh also just because for the longest time it was the the only version available so like the the famous yeah. one of the most famous silent films from the most famous you know silent filmmaker of all time was not inherently silent uh because right. all the intertitles were taken out and all of the you know he added a voiceover Uh, kind of command, you know, dictating everything that went along. And it was an interestingly different way to to view the film from what
0: I understood it up until now. This I watched, uh, well, it is one of my favorite chaplains, so I didn't mind at all. And I I watched the 1925 and the 1942 back-to-back. Like, Mm -hmm. uh, one sitting, like, I didn't get up, I i started the the other version right when it ended and i love the film so much i don't mind yeah no Uh, i I, I probably
1: this might be one of the films i've watched the most it's just Mm -hmm. so easy to put on so easy to enjoy so many great moments oh yeah and it and it just flows just flows uh and i could have easily (laughs) sat down and watched the the 1925 version immediately after myself if
0: i didn't have other things to do at that moment (laughs) So I hadn't seen the sound version either, because I think I took your word on it that I should just watch the silent first, of course, to get the context for what it would have been that changed anyway.
1: I just felt like, I mean, obviously I gave that advice without having seen it first, which is... uh not something you should usually do but
0: but it's just like a good direction in general i think you should see the original silent yeah it just
1: makes sense even though that the original silent version is not like the original silent version the the the
0: score that's composed
1: for it's it's a recreation of the original silent version the score is compiled from pieces of the the score that backs the 1942 version uh so that means it's still part of chaplin's original vision but like it's a different take on his original vision mm-hmm. uh and, but it's still complimentary and and clearly designed for the film and so it, it feels uh entirely cohesive that way and they're able to piece back like the the little bits from the end that that chaplain had cut out and re-added onto the film and other moments uh kind of throughout uh but yeah it feels like a cohesive and full and pure version of his original classic there and and to me the gold rush has always been the the epitome and the perfect example of Chaplin as as a filmmaker wholly in that period in which he was like, like it was unadulterated by the advent of, of sound, you know, like city lights, you know, as pure as it is, it still has that concept of a a vocal, you know, a a soundtrack and the accompaniment of of particular effects and everything. Mm -hmm. Uh, Modern times is obviously conceived entirely with that in mind. and has dialogue sprinkled in throughout as a part of its commentary there and its subversion of you know uh, talky filmmaking at the time. So the Gold Rush was like you know this the the best version of the best period of the you know singular form of Chaplin's filmmaking.
0: I agree. It stands for so much, and it stands for so many things. I like that it could only be my favorite, and that, um, in that it has something of like the Nanak of the North, or you know, like that documentary feeling of what that early uh pioneering documentary would feel like and uh, also capturing something real like that was a uh, happening in the you know the america and uh, a gold rush was a authentic thing that it was recapturing and kind of reselling us as a retelling of something whereas uh, some of those other films I don't, you know oh, they're, they're not documents <laughs>
1: One of the one of the interesting things is that like the opening shot of it, where you've got those people climbing up the mountain, it's a it's a literal recreation of a photograph that uh, Chaplin saw at uh, Douglas Fairbanks and uh, Mary Pickford's home that inspired him to make a film about the the Klondike and the Gold Rush uh, of them literally traversing up the mountain. And so it's also uh, it was shot on location in the the, the mountains in Northern California, uh, and so it's it's a real authentic. Uh, Moment, you know, in a film that's that's otherwise comprised of cinematic trickery and sound stages mm-hmm. and, and all effects and all the wonderful things that make movies kind of magical aspects. So it's yeah, that that documentary feel that it has in those in those early moments especially, and those calls to like the the Flaherty film and such and this obsession in the the early 1900s with the kind of like the last vestiges of the the unexplored areas of the world. You know that's all I think inherent there, and you and you see that still existing and influencing uh, something like the gold rush here.
0: Yeah, and it it makes sense as like a a gold rush within like a Hollywood phrase too, as well of people chasing the money and of this being one of the uh, most profitable. silent pictures and definitely of that decade right i mean it was top five i believe it's so. it's up
1: there and it's again one of the more enduring ones i like that idea like you said like
0: yeah because the movies were
1: kind of their own uh revival of, yeah. of the gold rush uh, again it's it's people flooding to california yet again to make their <laughs> fortunes and, this and time then they did
0: it, it again with uh, tech right yeah <laughs> yeah just cyclical
1: yeah, it's kind of a, a fascinating thing. California really is the the promised land, I guess. I wonder what's what's going to be next.
0: <laughs> Seattle. <laughs> <laughs>
1: we'll see. But yeah, this was. Um, I think this might have been my first silent film that I saw. Really? Or at least it what was a one great I first. Out. Uh, it was definitely the first Chaplin film I sought out. I knew of Chaplin okay. because, of course, how can you not know about Chaplin? He's he's an iconic. And, uh, you know, Bate didn't figure to popular culture. Even if you've never heard his name, you know his his look, his figure, his character. And, and it, you know, despite, like, the accessibility of things, uh, you know, when I was first starting out watching films, I, I was mostly contained to, like, Netflix, you know, is what I had. And then uh, I would go all the time to, like, flea markets or, like, you know, your, your used stores. Or, you know, there was, like, a um you know or or best buy and i would buy movies there or whatever and of course lots of those places never had these these classics necessarily you were getting a lot of recent shit on on dvd so one day i just i was like i knew of champa and i was like what's you know and and i looked up like this old dvd of of the gold rush and it happened to be and i bought it it was like six bucks i bought it Mm. for It it was it was not like a great dvd but it worked it was great uh and uh, and and that and I finally watched it that way, and it was it was absolutely uh, a wonderful experience, and and I and I understood the appeal of Chaplin and silent films and this particular kind of comedy immediately, and that's why I've always kind of felt like this is the the pure. Version of Chaplin, and why I would recommend this before something like Modern Times, which I think is a better movie uh, for lots of reasons, particularly a lot of those, the social commentary it's able to sneak in and its play with with sound and you know uh, soundtrack and such. But uh, it's it's not as pure like like I said, and singularly Chaplin, you know, uh, in terms of what the character represents and his comedy, you know, especially and that combination with the pathos and, and drama that this really achieves it's its the perfect blend of both of those elements uh you know a lot there are a lot of people out there I know prefer like the kid as is like his true masterpiece but I feel like that one leans way more on the drama side than
0: the comedy whereas the- which I just which I just watched and mm-hmm. the kid was kind of like a savior piece for his the tramp character and he had just like lost his newborn kid and was uh, kind of reflecting that in drama I think I don't think it's as funny as uh, others do, but
1: it's definitely not. And and uh, it's while you know many people give it like the the highest laurels and have great appreciation for it. It's because I think of those, it's important. It's right? because of like, those dramatic aspects that that are inherent to Chaplin's world. but the the balance yeah. isn't there as right. So while I might recommend it still, like it's not as. Um, you know singularly Chaplin, i think is something like the gold rush which strikes that balance really well again it's it's one of its funniest films for sure it's got some of the best and most memorable gags of any any film but it's also got that great pathos though that that dramatic aspect particularly at the new year's party and and you got that that sunken feeling and that heartbreak that comes through (laughs) in his character
0: yeah there's uh I realized the second time I was still laughing pretty hard at the same things I was laughing hard at the first time I watched it. So, watching back to back, I think proved how ironclad this movie is. How, how really unfuck with the bullet is. Uh-huh. I mean, there's, there's not much I can really tear apart here because I like everything here. Um, I like the dance. I like the big dance that that you're talking about there. Um, uh, the. The bits with the wind blowing them back and forth as they're in the house uh, is just hilarious. I think so much of Chaplin, of course, uh, inspiration for like the cartoons we all watched growing up, and where we kind of mind our sense of comedy from like the Looney Tunes and mm-hmm. uh, all of that. So uh, like my whole generation, I'm sure, is influenced by Chaplin, whether or not they know they're influenced by Chaplin.
1: Well and the thing about it is that it's so universal. You don't need any any context to appreciate that that kind of gag or that comedy. It's applicable across the board and just mm-hmm. inherently there there's a humor in it that, that you get. And like and, and the impressiveness of those sets with the with the wind yeah. effects in particular, especially as you get to the finale with the tipping house and everything, and the cutting back and forth between the model very seamlessly it's it's all incredible filmmaking and and it is. um and, and a demonstration of you know how the the magic of the format operates which is something that's is, is so special as well about the the silent era in particular how they're able to because again it, it was all one of those things where you had to do it in the camera there weren't post uh, yeah. you know optical effects there weren't post effects you could apply to it it had to be done in the moment so you had to conceive of a way to make a grander story and in a mm-hmm. smaller set and location. Everything had to be fabricated and made for it. I think all the snow is, like, made out of flour, you know. <laughs> sure. In, in, in a lot of the, the instances there. It's... <laughs> uh, and, and there's so much of it, too. And and you make so many great gags out of the, the setting and the environment. Just, yeah. like... Like something as simple as like the early gag where he's like he's got his cane and he and he leans up against the mountain and he just falls in because it's just a pile of snow. <laughs> yeah. it's, small. It's, it's it's it's, yeah. it's it's the simplest thing, but it's perfect and hysterical.
0: Um, I like the the hallucinatory chicken scene as well. Is very important. Uh, that that plays well still today. I think importantly because these are mostly physical gags and they're physical comedy. They'll always play well. I I think, like, a written comedy will eventually go out of favor, but a, a physical comedy will always play as well as it always did.
1: Mm-hmm. I, uh, the chicken scene in particular is, is great because it, it had to be Chaplin in the costume. They originally had, like, a stagehand... <laughs> doing it, but Chaplin wasn't happy with it, so he donned the costume instead. And so that's what made the transitions where they like crossfade between the chicken and Chaplin and the movements are perfectly <laughs> matched up because he's able to recreate that specific movement of the tramp character seamlessly. <laughs> Even as a chicken. It's it's yeah. not just like he's seeing a chicken,
0: it's the tramp as a chicken. It's very readable as Chaplin still, which is is makes it so interesting as a visual gag too i agree i i think it's such a wonderful gag and i think the chicken costume is really great too oh, it's, a, um, it's a great
1: looking yeah. costume isn't it like it it's is. obviously yeah. like a fake chicken but it has all the features of a chicken and looks like like just an oversized chicken and it's and it's great it's just wonderfully detailed and, and, and a made you know piece of work there and helps sell that uh, that scene
0: all the more so and i think is uh his heavy actors that are with him, um, his players that join him in the in the cabinet, especially, they add so much, and they're they're so funny as well. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, he's got some some great foils there. Uh, you know, Chaplin didn't always have like a, a staple uh, heavy, like in the case of like mm-hmm. a like a Buster Keaton, you know, who you know or whatnot, who had these you know particular people that they constantly used and, and rotated between. But uh, the, the people he, he employs here for playing, like uh, Big Jim and, uh, you know, Black. Uh, what's his name? Black something. <laughs> Black Larson, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah Black, Black Larson. Larson. Uh, is you know they're they're really terrific and they bring that that sense of you know like like heaviness and ability to just to, to throw around the tramp and it's still that that's that's such a simple thing that's still effective the like the tiny toothpick character of the tramp versus the big rotund you know heavy who's gonna throw him around the room and such.
0: Uh, you imagine their need for hunger is much different than each other's, um, and that they have different experiences with food and all that. Um, I think. I think most interesting looking for me was finding more out about like Chaplin's upbringing and how often he was hungry and what food must have meant for him uh in a big way what this must have meant for him going back to like just a childhood of starving all the time and really craving that much food and and then having going without and i think it's a story for anyone who's ever been without like i mean for me very very brief periods of growing up like just just going without will make you realize what it what it really feels like and and that's a very common experience still and
1: that's that's such an interesting facet of Chaplin's character and how that informs the tramp and, and makes him such a more realistic rendering. And those themes that pop up, because it's like, despite the fact that at this point, he's a multimillionaire and one of the most famous people in the world and, mm-hmm. you know, living in the, the, the lap of luxury in in his, you know, Los, Los Angeles home, he's still channeling those aspects and those formative, uh you know, that formative parts of poverty that he grew up in, you know, and and his mother died, and, you know, he lived homeless for a long period of time as a kid, and that all kind of informs the destitution that follows the tramp everywhere, and you look in in almost every one of his movies, you know. Uh, and and you see that that living you know life by you know the the nickels that you can scrape off of the ground essentially and and that's where he gets so much pathos from as well and the inherent loneliness that's there as well you know the the, the rejection and all of that comes especially I think fantastically in the film's uh, New Year's sequence where he's having this this fantasy and it kind of all comes crumbling down with this this ultimate rejection that that he has by um, you know, the, the, the Georgia Hale character.
0: Even by the end when he's more moneyed and he has more, uh, you know, more prospects, he still stops for the dropped cigar and he still doubles back and will take up a coin if he needs to. Mm -hmm. Um, and and that shows you that that never left Chaplin and that was still a motivating factor like at the, at the ball. And uh, you know, you feel, you feel social class all over his films. I think that's what the gold rush connected me to in his character.
1: I guess if there's if there's one issue I have with the film, it's that, that resolution that he ends a multimillionaire. In my head, I've always kind of like just imagined that the film ends with him dressed up as the prospector again and then yeah. he gets kicked off the boat when he gets mistaken and he's not saved by by the girl <laughs> who recognized him or the, the the crew there and so he loses everything and he kind of has to start again because that always felt like the perennial conclusion for the tramp character that he'd have to walk off down the road again, you know, and and start mm-hmm. anew. Uh, and and the the gold rush ends with the sentiment that he's going to have a, a good life, uh, and and it's and it feels then detached from the rest of his characters, whereas something like modern times ends on a similar note where he's with the girl still, which is unusual for for him. He doesn't usually get the the girl in the end, but it's also the, sen- the you know the send off for his tramp character, so it feels correct and rewarding that he gets mm. the the happy ending there at the end of his his journey as a as a character as this staple of of, of Chaplin's filmography but here in the gold rush it's like uh then then the, and the next time we see him in city lights it's like this is a different tramp this is a different character and you know you in, unless you're doing what i'm doing whereas you're you're manipulating how the ending actually plays in your head then it has to be somebody
0: else it, yeah you figure that it's just a character that starts over uh that's fine. I think I think yeah, that's how I view it. I don't view it as this is a continuous story of one guy living one life. It, I mean, it is. It's
1: it's a meta textual fixation that obviously that I'm I'm focusing on here. You know, because yeah. they are all singular works, even though they are operating ostensibly with the same character mold here and they're all part of the same you know history of of this character we you know we we collectively imagine that even though really it's like a it's a new interpretation every time of this same mold the same figure um, but I like to think it's a continuation, you know, throughout all of okay. his works, and and so I kind of just like I amended that little bit in my head every time, where it's like he's not actually a millionaire still.
0: <laughs> he got kicked out. <laughs> Although off the boat. I do like the gag at the end where he gets confused. That's that is a, a good way to go, and I do think it would end differently if you if you did what you wanted, but uh, yeah, it would, it would. I'm okay with it still. Yeah, it would. I'm it okay would, with the optimism. Like sure, think of sure. the time. Think of like the 1920s and and what people needed to see at the time, right? Like. Maybe this is what they needed at that time and would have made sense to make.
1: Well, it's also interesting the difference in the ending versus the the 1925 version and the 1942 version because Chaplin clipped off the end of the original version there where he has this extended kiss mm-hmm. with, with Georgia Hale. Uh, I, I've read potentially it's because he was he had soured on that relationship because it didn't go as well afterwards, so he just didn't want to yeah. see as much of it. It still ends on a romantic note, but it's just them like walking up the latter you know and they're gonna have a happy ending and he narrates that they did they had a happy ending and i kind of like that conclusion a little bit better than kind of extending it out it does feel like it goes a little too much with the kiss in the 1925 version but again this is all like like kind of like tiny microscopic detail stuff that i'm fixating on in terms of the ending because overall it really is this kind of perfect distillation of Chaplin's uh, oeuvre and his and his persona and his mm. style uh, and his approach to comedy and and drama, and uh, you know all, all in this neat little little unique package.
0: I think it works too that he narrates the the newer version, the nineteen forty two version. Yeah. It, it doesn't. Offend me or anything. It doesn't turn me off the movie totally. At least it's Chaplin's voice.
1: <laughs> I I don't I don't hate it at all. Uh, I I find it actually kind of interesting in a lot of ways. I, I yeah. compared it in the very beginning here to Tarantino remixing his his own novel, and I feel like that's kind of what it is. It's it's Chaplin reinterpreting and and rechanging some things. It it gives the film a different context in in certain ways that the intertitles don't he gives more character more personality to a lot of the players by lending them his his voice Mm. and adding uh you know kind of like affectations and additional comments that aren't there in the 1925 version. And that's an interesting component that gives it more more life in some ways. And a lot of the same sentiments, and even the same words of the intertitles, are preserved in his narration. They're so,
0: very good intertitles, by the way. Oh, I like yes. them in this, yes.
1: Yeah, they're... they're uh terrific and I think convey the, the story fantastically. I do still like the, the nineteen twenty five version more for that kind of I do too. Yeah. sense of, of of seamlessness because the narration sometimes like it, it prevents my immersion entirely because I'm reminded that I'm watching a story as opposed to being within the story and, and just witnessing it. Uh, and I'm having it told to me instead, but it's very good narration still. Uh, I think Chaplin does a terrific job being the 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 voice of everything. Sometimes it feels like he's giving too much for for no reason. Like uh, yeah. the one moment that kind of sticks out to me is when he's uh, when 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 Chaplin's trying to when the tramp is trying to leave the room and uh, Black Larson's just like get out, get out, get out, and he keeps yeah. saying get out, and, and it's kind of over or on top of the gag. But for the most part, he doesn't over you know interject over the actions of the characters and lets the silent gags still play as silent gags which is important that's i think a very i think
0: that's yeah the most important part is the silent gags still play as they're intended as like actionable yeah. pieces on their own
1: and and i think what it ultimately is as well is that it's an interesting kind of like what if scenario like this is what movies could have been Going yeah. forward, if if the hyperfixation on dialogue uh, had not overtaken everything, in you know 1929, um, you know we could have still had this singular kind of uh, visual expressive art form, with the addition and supplemental features of sound. Like you have sound effects throughout, and you have sometimes some narration explaining things, but it still could have been a primarily visual and physically expressive medium first and foremost. And, and uh, yeah. there's a couple of I, other cases, uh, in, like the right off the gate when they had synchronized soundtracks, in the case of, like, Sunrise, you know, is, is a primary example, or even, like, in other Chaplin films, like in City Lights and in Modern Times, where he did use sound to supplement the, the visuals on screen. But, of course, it didn't take off, you know. And so those, those few examples we get of, of this kind of filmmaking is, is unique and uh, kind of singular.
0: And it puts silent films right where I want them effectively, where they're expressive and sound, but they're still visually, um, where visuals are still the priority here. Uh, I, I do wish we had that future just to see what it looked like, uh.
1: You you kind of miss out. You, it's it's a universe you'd want to like dip your toes into, kind of peek your head yeah. in and see what it's like. But you wouldn't want to necessarily leave this one for because <laughs> yeah. obviously I I think the it's I want both. Yeah, obviously, yeah. It's it's the discarding of the silent medium that we regret. It's not the embrace of sound that that is the loss.
0: It's just that like the them both to have happened concurrently and to have like another um, alternate. Uh, cinema happening just, at the same time.
1: It wasn't meant to be, you know? Uh, yeah. and, and in some ways that makes the the silent era all the more special and more of a time capsule and an embodiment of a particular period. But it also feels then like this kind of lost art that could only have existed in that brief stretch of time. It's it's hard to imagine, even with the few examples that we do get of modern silent films, how, how they would fare nowadays if they were the primary you know, form of expression. It, it seems just kind of antithetical to our, our sensibilities of today.
0: It does. Yeah.
1: I don't think that modern audiences, uh, and obviously like a lot of that is informed by how much the medium has kind of cultivated their sensibilities, but I don't think modern audiences would appreciate a, a modern version of, of silent filmmaking that would require, more uh, engagement and interpretation and expression, mm-hmm. as, as opposed to the the kind of spoonfuls of you know, uh, you know, v- visual effects and light shows and sounds that were kind of spoon fed nowadays.
0: Absolutely. Um, if only uh, Chaplin had written a novelization, maybe he would have. <laughs> well,
1: and and I think. Uh, even despite that, something like Chaplin, as, as you can see, time and time again, is just a an absolute timeless and and perfect capsule that has a, a an infinite appeal across the cosmos. It feels like anyone Absolutely. show show anyone who said like it doesn't matter like anyone who says they don't like black and white movies, they don't like silent movies or whatnot, it won't matter. They're gonna love even just the bits they see of of Chaplin. It's that immortal. It's that baked into everything we enjoy because again, it's so. Influential and so universal, and so everlasting that you know it's it's never going to age. It's never going to lose its appeal. And the gold rush, I still think, is the primary example of all of that appeal.
0: Oh yeah, I think this one most of all seems ageless, and I think I think it being like a snapshot of a time in a history too is makes it ageless and something that we always need to document and keep around. So yeah. uh, we've we've done the. Uh, Buster Keaton and the Harold Lloyd, and uh, finally got to Chaplin. I can't believe it took us 125. But,
1: but it kind of went in opposite order of their their usual recognition yeah, of fame. I'm glad though. <laughs> are we are we officially labeling ourselves the the, the Chaplin enthusiast podcast now? We we did it I, for the other two. <laughs>
0: no, I I think we stay with the Keaton um Keaton podcast. Okay, that's that's all. Though been... if there were one work that would convince me that it would be the Gold Rush. Mm-hmm. Um,
1: there's there's definitely so much more to explore and that's not to say that we're done with with them but we No,
0: but uh we've got through the... I'm,
1: I'm glad we've addressed them them, them all three now <laughs> yeah. maybe we'll watch some some Harry Langdon now or Max Linder or some of the other ones that nobody knows about
0: <laughs> are we going to be a Linder podcast is it is that a path that's possible I don't I don't think it is
1: I don't know the the, the very small Max Linder fan base out there is about to get a huge boost
0: <laughs> the two of us <laughs>
1: well uh I, I do believe we have something special next week planned though since we, we finally got around to doing this
0: yes yeah, and I since I indulged you watching a, a somewhat silent film a, a silent film and a, a voiced film we're going to watch a another voiced film from <laughs> from France the, the, the two uh, by a of French films. director Uh one about uh, beaches and uh, sexuality and exploring uh, men and women's relationships on the beach. Uh, it could only be Eric Romar, so uh, Claire's knee next week.
1: I'm, I'm very interested to see this. This is a special birthday cast for, for Cal. I'm, uh, I'm very
0: nervous, honestly, so uh, I'm, yeah, I've, I've I'm just going this. to enjoy it. Uh, whether or not you have a good outcome will be irrelevant to my uh, long-term uh, fandom of this like no, you talked no about uh, <laughs> like you talked about gold rush it was uh the movie that really got me into french cinema and actually cinema generally art cinema uh, so no pressure but i think it's the best movie ever made um and the best one we've ever covered so uh no pressure it'll, it'll be great
1: we'll, we'll see if this podcast is still around next week i guess <laughs> It could be the last episode. We never know. Uh, Until then, uh, thanks as always for tuning in. And make sure to check out our website, thetwingeeks.com, for our latest reviews, retrospectives, and features. You can follow us on Well at The Twin Geeks uh, and individually at Calvin Kempf and at David A. Punch. Don't forget to check out our sister video game show, The Daydream Cast with Pavlos and Brogren, as well as our uh, Ranking of the Monsters, our kaiju podcast with Calvin and Steven. Uh, both available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else podcasts are played. Leave a review and rating if you can, and we'll see you next week for another conversation on classic and contemporary cinema. <laughs>